And the audio hijack's working pretty well. I just am a little bit louder than you guys, but I know Jim can fix it. Yeah, I, I certainly fix can. Fix it in post. Yeah. All right, let's try this again. Go. Because, God forbid, we haven't spent a whole fucking hour trying to get it done. You know, I just want to point out, Skype. Yes. Skype, Microsoft product. It's 9 p.m. It's 10 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time on Wednesday, September 14, 2011. 9.51. And tonight on Media Leopard Bebop, we're not using Skype to record this podcast. And Kirk will explain why. Then the world gets its first look at Windows 8, which fully seeks to integrate tablet and desktop computing into a single operating system. And finally, we induct a 1970s art rock classic into the Media Leopard Great Albums Hall of Fame. What do these three topics have in common? The answer may surprise you. Hey there, everybody. We're the Media Leopard Bebop. Welcome to episode 15, Skype Hunting. I'm your host, Jim Connolly, and with me are Kirk Biglioni. <coughs> sorry, sorry, I still have a... I got a cold. And is that, Tim Gass- is that a virus? I'm- it's, an oh, aus- it's a Tasmanian virus. And it's, Tim Gaskell over there on the other track. I am I am um, still gender neutral. And God that knows if this is going to work. Doesn't really matter that you're gender neutral. I mean, that shouldn't even be mentioned at this point. Well, it's kind it's, of a state of mind, isn't it? Yeah. It's like we're all fine with that, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I could actually yeah. care less, Tim, whether you're gender neutral or 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 have, have a particular gender you like. It's your own business, and I think what we're saying is we don't want to hear about it. Uh, I'll blog about it. Yes, you do that. Perfect. So we're doing this podcast via iChat instead of Skype, because Kirk had, well, Kirk, why don't you tell us? It's working great, though, Jim. It's like everything you've always wanted, right? Yes, it's perfect. Perfect. That's why it's taken an hour to get to this point, and God knows if we're even going to, if anybody's going to hear this either. Yeah, my Skype story. I've been using Skype for years. Reliable service. I've used their paid services. They had account information on file. I've used them for maybe seven years. I've had all kinds of things. I've had the Skype in number. I've had voicemail. I've done calling to international on numbers. I don't use it that much for any of that stuff anymore because I've got Vonage, I've got Voice over IP, I've got Google Voice, I've got all this other stuff going on that replaces what I ever needed Skype for in the past. I'm down to the only thing I'm using Skype for is this. But they still have my account information on file. And my account was set to auto-refresh when the balance went below $2. And when the balance went below $2, it would automatically top up from my account. It would add $10. And it had been this way forever. It was never, That's what mine does. It was never a problem at all. That's what yours does, Tim. Okay, then you'll, then you'll be interested in this story. <laughs> yeah, my, my ears are uh, being picked up. Look, I don't want to hear about your dirty sex stuff, okay? 
So we go to Australia, we lose a day, the internet access is not as reliable as it is here in the United States, it turns out. <laughs> Hotel internet is $29 a day. <laughs> we're, we're, we're not necessarily, or, or $10 for two hours, and there are bandwidth caps. <laughs> it's insane. So we're using the free internet wherever we can. And somewhere in there, I noticed that I got an email from Skype telling me that my account had automatically refreshed. I think, okay, this happens from time to time. Maybe it's a delay. Maybe I used it and went under $2, and so it happened. I don't think anything of it. Then somewhere in there, I think I see another message, because I'm not I'm looking at my, on my goddamn Android phone, and I'm not necessarily inspecting every message the way I normally would when I'm at my computer or on my laptop. Um, then by Friday afternoon, I'm sitting in the Melbourne Library. At Which Friday afternoon? The first Friday we were there. Okay. I'm sitting in the Melbourne Library in the middle of the Institute for the Future of the Book is hosting a, a book camp, which is one of the reasons why we're there. And I, finally, I get a reliable internet connection from the Melbourne Library, and I see that I've got like a half a dozen messages from Skype telling me that they're adding $10, adding $10, adding $10, adding $10, adding $10, adding $10. <laughs> so I log in to my Skype account immediately and look at the call history and see 116 calls to Indonesia. Oh, Tim, don't tell about your calls to Indonesia. Why would I tell him? No, just don't. And so, and so the first thing I do is change my password. And the second thing I do is turn off the auto-refresh. And the third thing I do is look around for the goddamn Skype support, which is hard to find because they want they don't want to actually hear from you. They want to put you through their system to try to figure out if their knowledge base can solve your problem. And there's nothing in the knowledge base for fraud. Well, because it doesn't exist. So I finally get to the point where I can send an email and, you know, go on, finish the day. Next day, I get an email from Skype saying, uh, thank you for contacting us. We are happy to report that we can confirm that you did change your password. I know this because I changed my password. <laughs> and that you did turn off auto-refresh so that your account will not be charged anymore and it's safe to continue using your account. Good. But, but, <laughs> we are not responsible for any fraud that took place and we cannot refund the money that was lost. <laughs> so, so, they're, so they're basically telling you, you know what, there won't be any more fraud, but the fraud that happened before, tough shit. Now, first of all, I've been a customer so long, they should have, they have enough data on me to know that's not my calling pattern. Yeah, and this is what banks do. When you, when you, <clears throat> you know, when, when you get a charge that happens to be across country or something out of the blue, when you just swiped it at a gas station in Los Angeles, they will pick that up and... Yeah, there's, um, there are patterns that, there are yeah. patterns that clear, are clearly identify fraud. Yeah. And 116 calls to Indonesia in two days for someone that's never called Indonesia before, racking up charges at a rate that are not consistent with the charging over the life of the account are absolutely indicators of fraud. Yeah. Right. 
So I think to myself, you know, I, I exchange a few heated emails with support saying, what do you mean you're not going to you're not going to reimburse me for fraud? Clearly, this is something that you should have caught and shut down. You know, their, their, their first thing is that I have a keylogger on my system or I've got a virus, which is not the case. Well, because you have a Mac, so how do you have a virus? <laughs> or I'm working from my, my iPad or my Android phone. Maybe it's the Android phone. And so, and, and, and I, we, I talked in a previous episode of Media Loper Bebop about password security and how I've got a unique password for everything. So mm -hmm. this was not the sort of thing where it was an easy, easily guessed password or a password that I had reused somewhere. There are other ways that fraud can be perpetrated on the Skype system. I believe they have a problem with security. Clearly, they should have had some level of, well, one is I think that there's there are some other security issues with Skype where it's not as secure as it should be. Two is they obviously, even though they hold account numbers on file and recharge them, they are apparently not actively doing fraud detection and, and detecting fraudulent patterns and shutting them down when it becomes obvious that someone is abusing someone else's account. So I contact PayPal because my, call, my, my account that was attached to my Skype account was PayPal. And I put through the thing, and uh, you know, uh, Skype has reiterated four separate times that they're not going to give me a refund. That's out of the question. It's my fault. It's my problem that I lost the money. I'm on my own. <laughs> right. So I go and do a um, uh, uh, dispute on PayPal. Is this company run by Ron Paul by any chance? Well, here's the thing. PayPal and Skype used to be related when they were both under eBay. <laughs> mm. And I think there still must be some connection there. Skype gets back to me and says, we can't do a refund on virtual goods. This raises other questions because, you know, almost everything is a virtual good now. You download a, a movie that's or music that's a virtual good. Uh, right. Minutes on voice over IP or vir everything is a virtual good these days. So there's no consumer protection on virtual goods with PayPal. Okay, that's good to know. I'll keep that in mind because I know a credit card would at least take better care of me than that. So anyway, in the meantime, I get an email from Skype telling me they've credited my account ten dollars. <laughs> Which is not which is, which is a fraction of what I lost, but okay, that's better than nothing. And so then I get back. I get the the trip ends. I get back, and I log in. It's sun, Saturday or Sunday, and I'm trying to take care of it, trying to like figure out what the hell's going on. I log into Skype, and my account is on hold, <laughs> and they want me to contact support to get it taken off hold. I'm thinking, this is odd. <laughs> so I go through the link when it says, your account is on hold, please contact support. I click the link and it sends me back to the knowledge base where there's no information to help me. So I have to go through the you know maze to get to the right form again. And then they say, uh, you're going to have to go into a chat mode, support mode, to get your account taken off hold because your account has been put on hold because you disputed a charge. So 
I follow the link. I'm taken to the chat room. I'm in a chat discussion with, I have to tell you, it's pretty clear that it's a chat discussion with someone from India. Right. <laughs> it's, not, it's not voice support with someone from India. It's a chat line with someone from India. Nice. And the chat room is not on a Skype domain and has no Skype branding, and there's nothing to identify the person I'm talking with as a Skype representative. And this, per and this person explains to me that my account has been put on hold because I disputed the charge. Like, that's odd. You know, I had someone compromise my account, make 116 calls to Indonesia, and run up my credit card through PayPal, or actually it was debited from my checking account, and that didn't put my account on hold. But when I actually go through PayPal and request a refund, that gets my account put on hold. And you're, she said, "You're a troublemaker." She said, "I'm sorry. That's just the way." She says, "I'm sorry. That's just the way our system works." <laughs> yeah. So here's what I need to do to get my account taken off hold. I need to give her my payment information in the unbranded chat room. Mm. That's not on a Skype domain for someone I cannot guarantee as a Skype employee. I'm the vi I said, you understand that I'm the victim of fraud and I've lost money as a result of fraud and now you're here in this generic chat room asking me to give you my payment information. What about that is, what about that is right? Nothing about that is right. So as a result, this is why I no longer have a Skype account. I just told her to cancel my account. I'm never using Skype again. So I should keep checking mine to make sure... You, well, at the bare minimum, if you're going to keep your Skype account and have payment information, which you do have to have the payment information there, turn off the auto-renew. You need to go in and manually add those minutes. The other thing you need to be aware of is if you add more than the minimum and someone compromises your account, you're going to lose those and you're not going to get that money back. It's like losing money. And then the other thing that I found out in researching this is that this is happening to a lot of people. And in particular, Indonesia is a place that's being called a lot. And, that, and this is, you know, further supports my belief that they should have some kind of fraud detection system in place. Yeah. Uh, is that once the password or the account is compromised, they can log in through the web interface and turn on auto-renew. Uh -huh. And that has happened to a few people as well. As a result of all of this, I don't feel comfortable having a Skype account. In this day and age of hacking everywhere and you know, security issues and, and bank meltdown, you know what, if they're not going to take care of me to that degree, they're not going to look out for me when someone compromises my account and runs up the charges, they're not going to give me a refund, and they're going to then they're going to show that they don't care about security by asking me to give them payment information in an unsecure, unbranded chat portal. That's it. I'm through with them. I'm never using Skype again. So, Jim, when you say that this last hour and 15 minutes of trying to get this to work sucks, I'm sorry to hear that, but I can't use Skype. But the final thing I wanted to say to, to finish off the Skype rant is that in, in all of the research that I've done, a lot of people who have been the victim of this have been upset, and they have confronted Skype representatives and Skype forums and said Skype is profiting from fraud.
and Skype adamantly denies the profiting from fraud, but if they allow the fraud to take place and they have no system in place to identify and shut it down as quickly as possible and they don't refund the money to the people who had it stolen, then they absolutely are profiting from fraud. Well, they're guilty of fraud themselves. And so by extension, Microsoft is now profiting from fraud. Well, they've been doing that for decades. And speaking of Microsoft... This week, Microsoft gave the world the first look at their next operating system, Windows 8. And it looks like they're not only trying to leapfrog Apple and combining the desktop and mobile UIs, they're changing the desktop UI to look more like their mobile UI. And it might be the greatest thing ever, but all I saw was big, ugly boxes full of big, ugly colors. Well, so that's... Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So here's my question. Given that screen real estate is always going to be different between desktops and mobile devices, and the needs for those devices are always going to be different... Do we really need what they're trying to do, which is a combined operating system for both desktop and mobile? Well, I, I don't know. The first, see, the first thing was straight out of the box. I got suspicious because on Yahoo News or whatever suspicious? they, were, I, I got suspicious because immediately people were that there were these fake news stories coming up how how the new Windows 8 kind of just puts. Um, the Apple iOS or whatever in in the dust, and it just seemed to me that it was like written by some PR hack for for Windows, and um, yeah. then it gets picked up on and liked on Facebook and stuff. The story, and so you get all these Windows fanboys kind of uh, um, you know liking it and everything, and it's like you guys haven't even seen it; you've only you yeah. know looked. Seen pictures and the pictures, I'm frankly, are horrible. Pictures are horrible. They're terrible. It's but, like, but 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 the, the, here's the here's the thing. You know what I would you know what I would compare this to is, is is just to address the issue of the hype and the reaction. This is like the Courier when the videos the Courier were floating around. Everyone was like, "This is going to be the greatest thing ever. This is going to kill the iPad. There's no way that anyone's going to be able to compete with this." And then it just turned out to be a marketing video for a non-existent product that was ultimately killed by Microsoft. I think Windows 8 is more real than Courier, but people don't tend to understand the difference between a demo and a real-life product. And people were responding well, to a demo that's not yet a real-life product. Exactly. Well, but there's also there the, the, there's also the the I think what the larger issue is they're trying to move the desktop to a, a tablet-based UI, and I wonder if 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 they should just give up on the mobile and tablet market and and aim more towards the business market where maybe that type of interface doesn't really work as well. Okay, this is where I disagree with you two, is that I think they have a shot in the mobile market, and I think their shot is to beat Android. And they're trying to beat Android by emulating Apple in a, micro, in a very Microsoft way. By stealing some stuff, but and then leapfrogging other things and not they're, quite... Yeah, they're trying to, they're, you know, basically what they're showing is the antithesis of what their previous vision of mobile computing and tablet computings was. Now, all of a sudden, now, all of a sudden, this is Microsoft's attempt to get it right instead of doing it the way they've been doing tablets for the last 10 years that, you know, no, 
Microsoft was doing tablets in 2000, but no one wanted those tablets, and no one has wanted those tablets over the last 10 years. Now this is like their first attempt to do it from scratch in a modern mm. way. And I think that it's got at least as good a chance as, as Android. I think the devices that come out, if they come out any time before mid-2012, are probably going to compete favorably with equivalent Android devices, but it's not going to be an iPad yet maybe if it evolves in a few years apple still has too big of a head start on everyone yeah they abs they absolutely do and um <clears throat> you know you really you know looking at what i've seen so far and basically it, it's kind of like different you, you know they're really touting these things like different um kind of ways to play with the screen and different finger pinches and stuff and it's like you know what that's really not a big game changer I'm afraid for me anyway well Tim so here's my other question it's 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 like I remember the review of the second Asia album where even somebody pointed out even if they were going to do never mind the bollocks here's Asia there's no way anybody would actually believe it was any good is there any possible thing Microsoft could do now in 2011 2012 that would convince you anything at all um, they would have to basically you have to it, it, it goes top to bottom I mean the thing is you would have to have hardware developers in sync with the software developers and that's just never been the the case with with Microsoft products they're so they're so out of whack that you you just get these really horribly designed products with horrible software on them you know with very you know but, but, but you're not you're not answering my question my question is if they did that would it make any difference to you I'm not saying they did what that, they... that maybe that would make a difference would I switch I would I wouldn't see any reason to switch because I'm quite happy and I'm I'm quite you know in entrenched with with the Apple products and I've already got them I wouldn't switch. Okay, so my point is there's nothing Microsoft could do. Well, and this is why Microsoft yeah. could be potentially disruptive and subversive because no one expects them. The people who are at the leading edge who have already invested in tablets don't expect them to do the right thing. But far more people don't own tablets than own tablets. And, you know, if they come around soon enough, they could get a, reason, a reasonable market share, especially, especially since Windows 8 is going to be the same on every device and Android isn't. And combine that with their patent wars against Android, they could really do some damage against Android. Yeah, I mean, that is a good point because uh, you've got all these latent, uh, you know, kind of potential Windows people who have not made the transition and they may just go into it. But the thing is, Apple has such a leg up. They've got such a mar huge market share. But, I mean, could we see what happened with the Android phones versus the iPhone? Uh, who knows? In the future, we will do a podcast where all three of us are using Windows 8 tablets. This sponsor, this sponsor, shit. This podcast is sponsored by the DuroSport Electronics Company, makers of the Duro Cloud Music Player. With the Duro Cloud, the player is the cloud, the cloud is the music, and the music is the player. Why aren't we using Duro Voice for this? 
You know, that's a good question because I—that's a really good question because I got a lot. Some guy, there's, there's, there's that Vladimir at, at, at Durosport who's been sending me nasty emails and leaving nasty that's messages good. on my Facebook wall, and they, they almost think we stopped podcasting because we lost that lawsuit. Wow, I can't comment. You know what? I'm not sure the DuroCloud could work any worse than GarageBand has. Nowadays, we think of Brian Eno as the calm, wise elder statesman, the guiding presence behind amazing records by Talking Heads, Used to, and others. Not to mention the creator of the Windows 95 startup music. See? Microsoft all the way around. But it wasn't always the case. At first he was simply Eno, who came to fame as the keyboardist in the wild glam rocking Roxy music, and equally as important, the creator of solo albums that struck a fine line between pop melodies and wild experimentation. And tonight, we induct one of those albums, his 1974 masterpiece, Taking Tiger Mountain by Strategy, into the Medialoper Bebop Great Albums Hall of Fame. Kirk, it was your turn to choose the album. Why don't you tell us why Taking Tiger Mountain is so fucking great? It's timeless. In ways that can't be explained, you actually have to listen to it to understand why it is timeless. You have to listen to it to understand why it is timeless. It's of its era, but it's beyond its era. I mean, does it really... It never sounded right when it was recorded. You could never really... What kind of music was it? And now... How many years later? Wow. 35, almost 40 years later? It's, um, it, it stands the test of time. I find that when I hear any song from this album, any song from this album, and this is uncommon for an album of this vintage, or uh, uncommon for an album that has been in my life for this long, comes up in random, random mix on iTunes, I immediately want to listen to the whole album. One song, right. one song isn't enough. And I find myself repeatedly going back and doing just that. And there are, there, I can think of very, very few other albums where that's the case. And can I can I just throw something out here? This is probably the only album that Kirk will hear Phil Collins drumming on. Yes! And that was the point I was going to make, is this may be the best album Phil Collins ever played on. There you go. Well, there, there is a... It's interesting because I was thinking about this. There are, there were two different... There were two separate 70s communities of art rock. There were like the... The classical music, uh, bombastic uh, uh, jazz improvisation, ELPs, 
exactly ELPs and Yes and Genesis. Then there were like the primitive um, Velvet Underground influenced, you know, Roxy Music and Eno and John Cale and even David Bowie. And there was, I mean, the first batch were the ones that got all of the the record sales and and acclaim. But the second batch are the ones that have kind of stayed influential for the last 35 years. And got the critical acclaim. The other ones didn't get so much critical critical acclaim as the Enos and Roxy Music's. I don't right. re- I don't really think of this as art rock though. I mean, I know technically it, it it counts as that, but it's I mean, would you consider? And I don't want to compare it to the Velvet Underground, but there are there that uh, the like the Velvet Drone runs mm-hmm. throughout this album. Yep. Um, you wouldn't call well, the I Velvet Underground. The art rock. As long as you consider the Velvet Sun art rock, then I would accept that answer for this album. But this and is the, definitely more in 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 the Velvet Underground category than the uh, Emerson Lake and Palmer category. Well, absolutely. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. There, was, there were two disparate strains of art rock, and there was one that was... Because I'm, 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 we're talking really conceptual about art rock, but, but if you think about it, the, the influence of, of like John Cage and, and Philip Glass and the repetition and the weird noises on top of the repetition, I mean, that's, that's a real art rock. That's no different from being art rock than the classical music and the hollow mountain king and the big bombastic long solos thing now i'm not as familiar with the other arm or other branch of art rock as you two are so you'll have to tell me if this is the case but did they make uh the extensive use of the other kind the the kind of noisy non-instrument like typewriters and silverware and and you know found yeah they used the voices of fairies (laughs) <laughs> I was thinking more of like the everyday stuff that, that makes noise that you turn into a musical instrument. Well, fairies wear boots, but that's pretty much about the only noise they make. <laughs> um, no, you'll never hear. Yeah, you'll never hear anything like Third Uncle so much on a Yes album. Monica sighed, rolled onto her side. She was so impressed that she just surrendered. So this was like a blend of early, early analog synthesizer experimentation with just kind of 
weird, like anything that analog that would make a noise com I feel like combined you together. With tape speeds as well. Yeah. Stuff like that. And and on like um, what's the last song on the first? Oh, the Great Pretender. The the side one. Is it Cicadias? Is that what he's emulating? Yeah, that just goes on forever. <laughs> That's so amazing. It's, it's almost like a circadian rhythm. Uh, here's another thing that uh, you would get on a Brian Eno album, but not on uh, Yes or ELP or anything like that. And that's ten songs on one album. Right, not ten passages in a suite, you mean? Well, not w well, not one song taking up a whole side. Well, because these are pop songs too. Impro well, improbably, these are pop songs. Well, I think that, and 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 not just pop songs, but like beautiful pop songs. I think "Burning Airlines" give you so much more is honestly one of the most beautiful choruses anybody's ever done. And lyrically, this album is amazing. And this whole concept that you can never quite figure out, but is like... I mean, this is the thing. I've been listening to this album for 30 years. I still don't have a clue what it's about. I've got a general idea of what the concept is. Favorite song on Taking Tiger Mountain? Third Uncle. Kirk? The True Wheel. You know, I would go with The True Wheel because it's like the chorus in the middle is great, but I'll go, since you said The True Wheel, I'll go with Burning Airlines, give you so much more just because it's, I go back and forth between those two and they're, the Burning Airlines is just so beautiful and so funny in a weird way, and it's got everything you want from a great pop song. Pick any song, you can't go wrong. I couldn't find anything online when I looked for it, but you remember the thing Michael Jackson did back in the 80s? Thriller? No, no, no. After the taking, <laughs> taking Magic Mountain by Strategy. Oh, it was wow. kind of a oh, tribute. God. Oh, right, 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 right. Oh, that's right. Yes, it was all dance pop versions of right. the album, right? Taking Magic Mountain <laughs> by Strategy. <laughs> I think they pulled that almost instantly because his, 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 his record company just didn't like it at all. It wasn't going to sell. Well, that was the only promotional album ever sent to KFSR where they actually sent someone out to retrieve it. 
What? We had to hand oh, yeah. it. They had like secure. It was like FBI showed up. They wanted it back. What? And didn't you barricade yourself in the record library <laughs> to keep them from doing it? But they like. I did. <laughs> they, they broke the lock and locked it. And, and but, uh, but almost like beat you up to steal it, right? No. You know what happened is I had that door barricaded, but there was a back door, and Munson, Professor Munson, let them in. <laughs> I think you were in London semester during this tent. Oh, I missed all that. Yeah, exactly. Oh, sir. Just one more thing. One more thing. Tim. How to be a retronaut. Not? What is that, you say? The past is a foreign country. This is your passport. Basically, retronaut... Um, Oh, the the website is called How to Be a Retronaut. Retronaut spelled R E T R A U T. dot com. Seek it out. It's a great. Uh, basically, it's all old pictures, majority in color, uh, from sources all over the world, especially Europe. <clears throat> and it basically it covers things like uh, one of my favorite is this abandoned pod city from like Taiwan or something from the seventies. Uh, in, in iPod culture. City? Yeah, it's basically. Um, you get things like beach, you know, old Life magazine covers and beach fashions from Havana, Cuba. And, um, <clears throat> this one's kind of curious. It came up today, Goldfinger on vinyl, and you click on it, and basically it has all the different versions of the album cover for Goldfinger, the soundtrack, from all the different countries and everything, with variations on the gold-painted woman and stuff like that. So basically, it's 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 like it's a mixture of culture, um, historical places like the end of World War II in France, um, um, kind of old. What I like is some of the old uh, kind of equipment. It's got like the Zeppelin train, the rail Zeppelin, which was built in 1929 but never went into production. But there's all these pictures on what it was. All these locations like you know the disappearing face of New York. Which is basically New York when it was dirty, and uh, places like that. It's one of those sites you get on it and you just can't kind of. It's hard to get off once you're on it. Like right now, I'm looking at U.S. bikini laws, 1933. Exactly. <laughs> basically, you had to be covered up a certain, like the bikini, like the bikini bottom had to be a certain. And they're distance. they're measuring the distance from the bottom of the bikini to the knee, and there's a cop riding <laughs> riding down the measurement. <laughs> It's so it's nostalgic in some ways, but kind of poignant in others. So I highly recommend it. One more thing, Kirk. Yeah, so I want to talk about Tasmanian devils. Oh, like in the but like in the um. The, no, like the Tas the Tasmanian devil. Although that comes into it, the Tasmanian devil in Tasmania. So I was at the Taronga Zoo, and the Tasmanian Devil Conservation Center is at the Taronga Zoo. So so we go to the Tasmanian Devil Conservation Center and learn some interesting facts about the Tasmanian Devil. Tasmanian Devil has only exists on Tasmania and has survived or responded remarkably well to its territory being inhabited by human beings. It turns out that the Tasmanian Devil actually thrives on some of the byproducts of human civilization, particularly roadkill. 
Roadkill is a new source of food for the Tasmanian devil, and apparently in areas that have been highly populated, the Tasmanian devil is thriving because of the roadkill. The problem is, there is a new form of facial cancer that is ripping through the Tasmanian devil community, decimating the population, spreading very rapidly because there is so little genetic diversity amongst Tasmanian devils. They are such an isolated species living on one island the way they do that there's just, you know, there's, they're all related. And the fact that they're feeding on the roadkill in concentrated areas is leading to a faster spread of the cancer. So there this is this weird thing where on one hand they're thriving because of you know the byproduct of civilization. On the other hand, there's this new disease that is threatening to wipe them all out. So the Tasmanian Devil Conservation Society is devoted to raising awareness about this issue and researching the causes and trying to find a cure and also taking Tasmanian devils and breeding them in this the zoo, basically, so that they could be reintroduced into the wilderness if there ever comes a time where the population falls so low that they're in danger of being, you know, there's an extinction danger. So I walk into the Tasmanian De Devil Conservation uh, center, and it is, the, without question, the strangest thing I have ever seen, strangest exhibit I have seen probably anywhere. It looks at first like a Roadrunner cartoon, <laughs> where there is like a scene painted on a wall that's like a desert with like the few plants and a, and a, a road from the distance painted coming up towards you. Right. And then the area in front of the wall is like the real habitat that has real plants and real signs and a real road coming out of the wall, <laughs> just like a cartoon. <laughs> wow. And, 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 and there are these signs, and there's one sign that has, you know, a Tasmanian devil on it, and then it says, Tasmanian devils feed on roadkill, but sometimes Tasmanian devils become roadkill too. And then on this road that's coming out of the wall, on this real pavement that's actually just extruding from the wall into you know, it's maybe like 20 feet of road, there is, closest to the wall where you would be standing looking in, there is a, a fake, dead, half-eaten kangaroo <laughs> oh. that's just been run over. <laughs> And then up by the wall, at the point where the, the wall turns into the real road, there is like this really poorly taxidermied Tasmanian devil that looks like he's been hit by a bus. And he's just laid out. And I'm thinking, this is the most bizarre thing I've ever seen anywhere in my life. And I'm taking photos, and I'm taking photos. And this woman comes in with her two kids. And they're looking at it, and the kids get very disturbed by this. <laughs> and they're, start, they're screaming, Mommy, they're dead! <laughs> they're, they're crying, they're dead! They're dead! Except the kids have Australian accents. And the mother, and the mother is, is like, No, it's just an exhibit. They're not real. <laughs> this, is just, this is an exhibit. They're fake. And the kids are just not calming down. So the mother is like moving them 
out of the area because this is not good. And I'm taking pictures like crazy. And as soon as the kids and the mother are gone, the Tasmanian devil makes the most amazing recovery. <laughs> he jumps up and starts running around the habitat. He was just playing possum. God. <laughs> it was a real Tasmanian devil stretched out like he was dead. And because of the sign which said which said Tasmanian devils sometimes become roadkill too. And because of the obviously fake kangaroo half eaten, <laughs> I thought this must be a taxidermy Tasmanian devil, obviously. And the kids agreed with me. The kids thought he was dead too. So, so he's running he's running around the habitat like like nothing's wrong. He posed for a picture, and I'm going to send this to you, and this has to be the picture of the podcast. He posed for a picture hovering over the fake dead kangaroo like he was eating it. Oh, God. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Do you think he was just waiting for, like, people to react? Like, he waits for people to react, and he says, Aha, I'm going to show you now. Seriously, if I was a Tasmanian devil in a habitat, that's what I would do. I would just fuck with the people so I'd scare them all the time. <laughs> One more thing. So I'm going to say something to you guys that I could have never said when we first met, or even for that matter, three years ago. I want a 3G iPad playing a Twitter hashtag game. And here's how. New York Magazine has a pretty smart pop culture section called Vulture. And I, I follow them on Twitter because they have at least a couple, one or two interesting links per day. A few weeks ago, God, maybe a week after we did the last podcast, maybe two weeks, who knows, they announced via Twitter, of course, their Polite Godfather contest. Basically, they said this. We have one new iPad to give away to the person who can tweet the best Godfather quote that has been retooled to be as courteous as possible. There's only a three-hour window in which to send them tweets. So I came up with a couple I thought were clever, hoping to maybe get retweeted at best, which didn't even happen. So I didn't think anything more of it, especially because before the window closed, the East Coast earthquake hit. In any event, you can imagine my surprise the next day when they messaged me and said I'd won the contest. My favorite tweet wasn't mine. It was actually a Time Magazine reporter named Claire Sudeth, and her tweet was, Look, I brought you part of a pony. My tweet, which won the contest, was this. Frito, you're my older brother, and I love you. Have you considered counseling? It's still funny. Within a couple of days, I had a brand spanky new iPad 2 with 3G. And to me, the super cool thing is, just last month, Rox had been given an iPad as a birthday present from her boss. So my guess is we're one of the few households in America with two iPads, neither of which were paid for, and neither of which were stolen. And you can afford one. Well, they're all they're all paid for somehow, Jim. I was this. I got this one with my damn cleverness, guys. Somebody no, but someone paid for it. Somebody in a factory in China paid for it, maybe with their life. <laughs> yeah, there's been that rash of suicides, and I think one of the reasons they're killing themselves is because they know that over in America we're just giving them away. <laughs> and somehow, after two full hours that does it for media leopard bebop episode 15 skype hunting i'd really like to thank my distinguished panel of co-hosts but they don't exist so instead i'll thank kirk this is going to be the best media loper bebop ever or else 
And I'd like to thank Tim. Jim, have you considered canceling? <laughs> and on behalf of Kirk and Tim, thanks for you guys to listening if you actually are. And we'll catch you soon. Same Bebop time, same Bebop channel. <laughs>